Today is February 12th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki Naganago Mekoche Chestokom Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitabi, which is a Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed US Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gunite, and Bogani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations of the Stoney, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status, and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknives Dene. My father is so Canadian, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Clincho Tine Indehe in Dene, meaning many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share what I know as I walk my red road. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. Also, giving a review helps whichever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel where you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and podcasts and pin posts on social media. And today I am so lucky to have my friend uh, Devin join me. Devin, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Devin Hargreaves in Lethbridge, Alberta on Treaty 7 lands. Uh, we've, we go back a, a long way, I'd say, provincial politics, federal, uh, and uh, past candidate for the Liberal Party for the riding of Lethbridge. And uh, yeah, happy to be here. Uh, we've had many great discussions offline and can't wait to see what comes up today. Right. And another um, win in your your hat, I think, is uh, the conversion therapy uh, ban petition that you had got started. And um, yeah, and, uh, Matt and I talked in the last episode and I was trying to explain to him how hostile like uh, Tabor was and putting together that and you know what it, what it's really like to be in Alberta but I think over the last couple of days a lot of Canada's kind of gotten a better taste of what it's like to be in Alberta. <laughs> yeah I personally I think uh, at least the Lethbridge writing is quite uh, progressive uh, but politics is a pendulum and it swings left to right at times and uh, I think with a lot of the rhetoric that we saw out of the states uh, over the past presidency uh, really escalated kind of that 
that far right swing in in Alberta and I'd go so far as to say Canada and it's disheartening to watch I don't think it speaks for the majority uh, but it's the the aggressiveness that they're coming forward with that uh, we are seeing and it, it does paint us with a, a bad brush oh awful um a lot of folks out now in um Ottawa today though are starting to breathe a little easier it looks like uh on Twitter that a lot of these folks were asked to go home and are indeed picking up their tents and their trucks and, and heading back here to Alberta. So I think, um, you know, it, Alberta might look a little different, but because uh, I, I, as far as I know, all of the convoys that are still planned to go from uh, all around the province to the legislature are still a go this weekend. And um, the Coots border still sounds like it's closed. So. Alberta, obviously a very different ball of wax than the rest of the country is experiencing. Um, I think Manitoba has a border now being shut down. So I'll be curious to see if the RCMP do some work there too. I don't know. I think a large part of the responsibility at Coots does fall squarely on the provincial government. The border itself is fine. The highway is a provincial jurisdiction. Uh, we see in Ontario that they are stepping up. They did send the police in to clear the Ambassador Bridge, but that's due to the steps the province took with a state of emergency and uh, and things like that. And we have a provincial government that doesn't like to take responsibility, as we're, we're quite both uh, well aware, and uh, in fact played into that sentiment that allowed a, a blockade to happen. Um, so I think it was in 2011, I did a book club with uh, Marcy McDonald's book about the road to Armageddon. And it talked about the rise of uh, Christian nationalism and conservative politics in both the US and Canada. And um, it was uh, Danielle Smith, she talked about what it was like going to those camps. So um, basically for folks who don't know, conservatives federally and provincially have been going down to the states to these conservative Christian camps. And uh, I think on, on air, she said her breaking point was um, their pro-life stance, right? So they're libertarian up to the point of controlling women. So of course she was like, oh, I'm out of here and she left. But the point is, is that that radicalization of conservative politics and that seeping into Canadian politics from American sources, you know, that's been ongoing. And of course the pandemic with uh, people's guards down obviously brought that up and the willful denial by progressive Canadians um, about the, extreme racism has just been so over the top it's actually been very difficult for me to watch the gaslighting from uh, progressives frankly so i um i think that there's a, a huge awakening from folks of how bad it's been and the silencing of uh, qt bipoc for up to now so i'm hoping that people will start fighting a little more for their democracy in a better way but it's really hard because like i was just talking to my dad and you know, he's like lecturing me on things that I know that I'm like on the record talking about years before the pandemic and people just were not, they're not paying attention, they weren't aware, didn't know the seniors crisis that was happening in the lodges and then on the hospitals and the strain on healthcare, no concept of any of it. For sure, yeah, and while well, you and I both have been talking for many years about a wide array of topics that we're we're really seeing come to the forefront right now and it's just that fact that you see it you talk about it and people take it for granted yeah. one thing i know you talk about a lot is just how racism can be subtle uh we both have our own uh racism 
uh, to some extent or other. And uh, I think it, this rise of the far right, the rise of the uh, neo-Nazism in, in some cases, it's, it, it comes in so subtly uh, that people say, well, well, we'll excuse that, that's not so bad. And then it will end up like we're seeing now with flying the swastika on, on Parliament Hill. And yeah, it's, it's really a shame to watch. One really interesting thing that uh, came out over the last bit with uh, Aaron O'Toole stepping down was that uh, the alleged rumor, I'll word it that way, that uh, he was driven out over uh, supporting the ban on conversion therapy. Uh, I know our own member of parliament here in Lethbridge voted against it uh, mm -hmm. previously uh, and was on the news within days to a very proudly announced that she was one of the initial signatories that helped drive O'Toole out of, of leadership. Uh, and I hope that, I really hope that that's not a foreshadowing of things to come with uh, a certain political party, that uh, it does push it further right. Uh, but I guess time will tell. It is and, going uh, right, though. Like here out in, in Alberta, like we have the Maverick Party, um, which was funded by, by this U.S. Trump uh, Magda group. Um, causing this entire convoy and now the um, riding associate or whatever her name, whatever her role in the, this party was, has gone missing with a, with uh, the GoFundMe. Like it, it's so incredible to me um, how everybody was, you know, investigating Indigenous to be, are we being funded by some foreign entity? And I've never gotten a, a check from George Soros or uh, any of these other so-called funders, foreign funders. And ironically, like anyone who's ever worked in oil and gas knows that all the oil and gas is uh, still fun funded and funneled through the U.S. So yeah. it's only like, um, you know, satellite companies that are in Canada. And because they fall under Canadian jurisdiction, they can use Canadian law to somehow kill Indigenous people globally into different um countries where they're indigenous people so like you know the the brazil the colombia's um you know the, there's no care for human rights even though ironically we champion ourselves as a human rights country it's another thing that really jumped out to me you might have saw i posted uh kind of a tongue-in-cheek post on facebook about uh these convoys and the the anti-vax movement that they've and I, I don't agree that it is a human rights issue but they've pegged it as a human rights issue but at what point have we ever seen any support for any of the causes that either of us have done when it actually entailed human rights, it entails uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, conversion therapy, uh, anything along those lines? When have we seen that, that support? Uh, and to, to pretend that it's something that they've always been passionate about uh, is kind of hypocritical. Oh, it's ridiculous. I think everybody's seen it now. Like, even white people are like, yeah, these are pretty big uh, kid gloves the police are using, um, you know, and somehow Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau, completely different, um, you know, ideological political beliefs, but they definitely united and we don't hurt white people. So, you know, it, it's been really difficult for us to watch because if it's uh, like every year, the Wet'suwet'en are attacked, like armed, attack they are living in their homes with their families and you know elders and children are being violently you know guns pointed at them by the rcmp and everybody's okay with it and there isn't this public outcry there certainly isn't 10 million dollars going into the tiny homes fund um and speaking of which it's uh so it's the 12th of february 
which means that on Valentine's Day, while a lot of people are going out for dinner, it's actually um, marches that we do nationally to honor all of the, it's supposed to be all women that have been murdered in the course of a year, um, but because mainly Indigenous women lead them, uh, it talks a lot about missing and murdered Indigenous women as well. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I do wish more people would, you know, go to our Valentine's Day marches, our Valentine's Day vigils, and, um, and participate in that. But ironically, all these freedom fighters are not going to be at them. They never have been. And even some of their leaders are now claiming indigeneity, which they very well may, but they haven't had a lifelong, lifelong uh, struggle of, you know, oppression because of their indigeneity. And that's, that's the ironic part when people claim indigeneity long after the part where they've already, you know, benefited from stolen land and imposed economy, and now they're suddenly indigenous. And it, it's so insulting and hurtful for those of us actually who are indigenous and trying to reclaim what's been stolen from us. Um, these are things that I am seeing so painfully clear and people have the audacity to claim to me they care about reconciliation, but they won't even, they don't fund us. Um, we have Marilyn North again, she's running again, uh, only this time for the NDP uh, nomination. And, uh, you know, again, you know, people claim they want systemic changes, but they don't volunteer for her, donate to her, nothing. Just like that was my experience as well. And, um, you know, I, I just am so sad to see it because people claim they're not racist, but they allow this white supremacy to grow and grow and grow. And it's so in your face. And we have all these reports and calls to action, calls to justice, and nobody's, you know, doing the work. And the Conservative Party have never had a platform for any of these things that I've been talking about. So they don't care about our rights. They only care about white rights. And that's why they're always in pictures with Nazis and pictures with Proud Boys and pictures with uh, the three percenters or whatever the racist uh, white supremacist group is of the day, you know, supporting convoy, which had swastikas and, um, you know, libertarian flags and all sorts of crap down there that are ridiculous. But everybody in Canada has accepted it for so long. And I, I will never understand this you know, claim to care about human rights. Sure. And I, I will point out, I do agree with the, the right to protest. Uh, I understand that not everyone who goes to these protests is in support of Nazi rights or flying those flags. But once you allow that into your movement, it poisons it. Uh, if you really disagree with that, step up, make sure that they know that that's not welcome. Make sure that rhetoric is not welcome. Make sure that uh, you are abiding by the, the laws of the land. Uh, I, th I think we've seen too many blind eyes turned um, where not all of us are like that, but some, some are. And if, if Nazis are feeling comfortable in your movement, then you may want to reconsider and you may want to make sure that they know that they're, they're not. Um, going back to your, your um, nomination uh, you're, you're working on. Um, mm. That was fun during my last federal election. You were all over the place. And I, I recall you were working on Maryland's uh, run for city council mm -hmm. at the same time. You're, you're amazing. I don't know how you did it. You hit Calgary, you hit Lethbridge. I think you went out to Medicine Hat all in one day. I did. <laughs> well, at the time I thought I could. And obviously now I'm paying um, in droves for it. But you know, it, it's um, one of those things that 
you know, at the time things felt like I could do, do those things and now I can't. And uh, now I'm having a hard time just leaving my house even. And, uh, but I also just had COVID and I'm not a hundred percent. I haven't been a hundred percent since I was sick before COVID. So it's been really a hard time. And even the move to Lethbridge was tough, but, you know, obviously we're back here in Calgary and trying to, we still haven't got unemployment, if you can believe it. Thank God um, Darcy found a job, but Jesus, it's, it's so depressing because you know, the socioeconomic uh, stats prove it. Um, you know, Indigenous women are at the absolute bottom of the socioeconomic ladder and uh, two-spirits aren't even really classified because they, they can't seem to study it. And so they're even lower than Indigenous women. And it's well, people, absolutely people like boxes, right? And uh, so uh, there's room made on paper for Indigenous or for people a part of the LGBTQ2 plus community. But when you have that intersectionality, uh, really, really confuses the boxes. Uh, yeah. And it's it's great to see so many organizations, so many companies stepping up and, and making no, they're not, efforts. They're not. But I'm telling you, that's, Devin. I'm that's why I say you. that's why I say on paper. Yeah. Uh, we can talk about how we want even more pay equality between men and women. And when it actually comes down to it, there's ways to circumvent that and to, to give that image. It's it's like during Pride Month, every company out there will fly a rainbow flag or put out a product with a, a rainbow on it. Uh, but it's what you do outside of June. It's what you do outside of these big months or these uh, reconciliation attempts or inclusivity attempts that actually makes that difference. Yeah, I know. And then and I'm, I'm still not seeing it. I'm not seeing it at all. Um, so anyway, my point with bringing that up was more that, you know, because you can be paid minimum wage, you get paid minimum wage, and there's nobody still advocating to change that. And uh, Two-Spirit, of course, are even lower on that scale because of the lack of opportunity for Indigenous people, let alone that intersectionality of LGBTQ+. So uh, the trauma that goes along with being in this, in this world is not made for us. And as you know, in Alberta, we've been uh, slowly cutting mental health to the point that there is none. And, um, you know, so there's no alternatives for us. And there's certainly no culturally appropriate alternatives for us. And prior to the pandemic, I was trying to work on that, but I can't do that now that I'm in this position where I need the services as opposed to be giving them. So it's, um, it's such a weird moment in my life right now. I never expected to be here, but, I think it's important that non-Indigenous understand the plight. Like when I open up my Facebook, all I see are people who are having economic problems or um, deaths, and you're not seeing that in the white communities. So that's why everybody's okay with all these trucker convoys because wearing a mask has been too much for them, even though our people are dying. And the Indigenous doctors in health, they knew that, and they advocated for us to have uh, vaccines first, but I can tell you whenever I went to a white um, AHS clinic, I experienced questioning that I never experienced when I went to the um, Aboriginal Friendship Center's vaccine clinic. So it, it's just, it, it's the racism is everywhere and the lack of healthcare is everywhere. And um, one of the things that I do appreciate being back in Calgary for was there was no doctors in Lethbridge, none. Um, and the one I have here, like she's a woman of color, ironically, but she has anti-Indigenous bias. So 
I'm not getting proper health care and I'm not getting proper diagnosis of what was wrong with me. And, um, and I know that, um, you know, uh, women, white women, they get proper health care compared to non-Indigenous. And an example is that my friend, she, and he, he talks about it openly, how his partner's mom and his mom have the exact same diagnosis, but because uh, the white mom's diagnosis was caught sooner, she was allowed, she was able to get health care and, and get past it as opposed to Indigenous women who get marginalized and she died. So I think that's, it's uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, it's something that doesn't fit into this uh, narrative, uh, again, even with with corporations, with government, where we all want to appear to be inclusive, uh, and it's easy to, to turn a blind eye to that. It's an uncomfortable topic to, to address and deal with. So I really thank you. You've educated me a great deal, too. You had that the partner of an, an individual who, who passed away on the show to, to share his story uh, about that uh, that racism in the, the healthcare system. And that was a, I, I cried listening to that episode. That was a, a real emotional one. And I, yeah, I really thank you for the work that you have done to, to educate. And uh, again, you put yourself out there, you do all this work, and then you turn around and post screenshots of the messages you get sent. It's... Yeah, some of them are fun. <laughs> I mean, actually comical. But like people in real life say that to me too. Like when I quit my job, um, I got told, well, I thought you were a fighter. And I thought, wow, tell me you don't understand without telling me you don't understand. Um, you know, no concept at all. What she had said to me was awful. And I, um, but it's it's that power dynamic of the boss is used to talking down to their employees. And, you know, it, it just makes me so sad because I know, like there were so many things I seen that no one should have to endure, let alone there's no accountability or, or security. So that was actually some things I wanted to talk to you about now that I've um, I've seen firsthand uh, some of the how registries work. I'm man, we got work to do. Um, so I know mental health isn't something that Albertans seem to care about, but until it affects them directly. But for the trans community. Um, so the RCMP have to do fingerprinting uh, for a person to transition um, so that they have the fingerprints of before and after their, their dead name compared to their new name. And that's an expensive process. Um, all of the ID changes, that's an expensive process. Um, these are things that I think should be covered under Alberta Healthcare at the very minimum uh, or, or some type of programming. I know Skipping Stone here in Calgary has been trying to do that type of work, but like it's overwhelming. And then the amount of permissions that you need from parents. And as you know, not all parents are going to be okay with that. And I think uh, the education to the general public to understand how hard it is to get the doctors to um, go through the process with you to even transition. Like that's not something that's easy to do. And a lot of people don't have that kind of healthcare that they can even access it. And, um, you know, so that there's so much work to do there. And then the worst part is constantly denying people who need healthcare uh, because they didn't have great paperwork. So the um, Alberta government doesn't accept uh, SIN numbers, SIN addresses, mailed SIN, um, or, and, and now even confirmation letters for um, permanent residency status for driver's license, et cetera, et cetera. 
and uh, like these are huge barriers of not having enough ID. And then uh, I was actually on a, a uh, community conversation with Bear Clan and with Taylor McNally of Inclusive Canada. We were talking about ID and I was telling them what it's like being on the other end of it, seeing all of these resources going towards ID programs that at the end of the day, between the shelters or the police arresting, um, all those IDs go in the garbage. Uh, whether it's stolen at a shelter or whether it's stolen by the police when they when they take it so then all of this money going into these nonprofits that are doing id clinics and id programs are like literally easily preventable uh things had they had like a locked locker if they had um a million things that we could you know options instead and i i'm, I'm just so sad because you can't get health care without uh certain ids and that's wrong too um, yeah. yeah, it was really eye-opening. And it's been an ongoing issue. Um, I, of course, moved to Lethbridge in 2011, but before that, I was in Fort McMurray, and I did a, a lot of work with uh, our downtown population. Uh, I, I couldn't, couldn't imagine minus 40 that regularly and, and not having a, a fixed address. Uh, but that lack of ID that... Uh, the difficulty in obtaining an ID or to, well, if you, you lose or have your wallet stolen with your ID, your healthcare card number, social insurance, because you have to carry everything you have with you, uh, you lose that. And to try to get any of those again, to even access healthcare properly, to even um, get mail, uh, try to find employment without uh, a fixed address and not being able to afford a cell phone or, yep. uh, and then, you can use the the drop-in center, but they call there and find that out, then they're going to have those preconceived notions of of what kind of person you are, and it's it's difficult to watch. Uh, and yeah, I'm I'm sure you've got a lot more of an inside scoop on that now from your yeah. I just don't know if I recommend it to anybody. It's it was hard on the heart, um, and and new immigrants like new um, refugees, new. Uh, folks that are coming here, like if you're a refugee, you have no paperwork. Um, I mean, you have a tiny bit of paperwork, but we don't accept any of that. And, you know, Jason Kinney was immigration minister. He purposely put up barriers that I know I don't even know. <laughs> so it, it, these are, are things that have been really, um, you know, weighing on my heart, the amount of people walking around with us with no health care. And, um, and ironically, I mean, the you know, then there's the other side of it where you don't want to judge people's life choices, but perfectly capable, able-bodied folks who had every reason to transfer their health care or their insurance registration, anything over from, you know, Saskatchewan, BC, and they just chose not to, and then everything's expired. And then, you know, they're the ones who get mad at us the loudest for not, you know, accommodating them. And ironically, like I, I got COVID and a lot of our staff yeah. did, and, you know, and there's no, there's no safety there. And, and I mean, you're hearing the nurses talking or the uh, teachers specifically talking about that right now. Um, Cause like five and under, they, they don't have vaccines. And just because you're five and over doesn't mean you, you, your parents were into giving you one either. So we're, we're in a real, predicament here where a lot of the teachers I think are are going to be exposed to the disease like it or not and yeah it's just too bad that they decided not to slowly back off on certain things and and ironically that these mandates were were just 
they were recommendations, guidelines, really. Like there wasn't really severe consequences to a lot of um, not following it. I mean, I walk around Calgary and I see especially men with their masks under their nose. And I just think you did 99% of the work. You literally just have to pop it over your nose. That's it. That's all. So yeah, it's been really eye-opening. Yeah, it, it sure has. One thing I think I really want to see come out of, and this is a little off where we just were, but sure. kind of. Uh, after this pandemic, I think we need to do a lot more work as far as accessibility, uh, as far as accommodations. Uh, I think the vast majority of people staying at home, working from home, meetings moving to online, uh, things like that really showed what is possible. Um, and technology has been there for a while, but not utilized as much. I would much rather be face-to-face -face with you right now, uh, but we're in two different cities and able to communicate this way as far as working on policy, as far as advocate, advocacy and, and moving forward. Um, I think it's kind of opened up a new horizon of, of where we're able to go. You know, One I've been advocating I'm, in the party for forever. I'm like, you know, if you could just have an online option to participate in some of these policy discussions and um, you know participating in conventions not only would it be a better eco uh, footprint that we're leaving behind but also be more inclusive and you know if you drop the registration from you know ridiculous amounts to something lower you probably would have more people coming anyway because you know, they want to come they just don't have access to jumping on a plane and spending you know, three thousand dollars to go to Halifax or whatever, right? So, and getting the time off work—it's yeah, it, it can be limiting. And I, from what I'm aware, there are online options being looked at, and I hope that continues into the future. Uh, not just in this, but in in all sorts of ways. Um, I think people with chronic health conditions, people that are are sick, and uh, we fought so much for paid sick time, uh, things like that. Uh, but just that ability, if you have a cold, to stay at home and work from home, I understand not all jobs allow for that. A mechanic cannot uh, work from home uh, like uh, some others may be able to. But where it is possible, I think we need to start seeing more, more accommodations and, and more leeway. Uh, and I think it leads to better mental health for people. I think oh. it leads to um, just that that knowing that there is more support. Um, and I, I think it would go a long way. One thing we found um, when we did our conversion therapy campaign is that, uh, and there's, I, I won't name the name of it, there's an online petition platform that is widely used that really doesn't stand up to the federal government. They do have their online petition source, uh, which is where we launched our petition, 18,200 signatures coast to coast. Uh, why doesn't Alberta in 2022 have an online uh, source to petition our provincial government. We wonder why our voting rates are going down, why more young people aren't getting involved, yet we still expect for any say in the government for someone to have to take that time to go around with a clipboard and uh, get signatures that uh, match. Uh, again, if you don't have a, a proper address, that makes it very difficult for the government to take your signature seriously. Uh, and uh, like I said, it's 2022. Uh, why can't we petition our provincial government online? If they, if they even want to do it with recall legislation, I think that could be very interesting to see where that went. Uh, we're in a pandemic. Uh, I don't think it's particularly wise to be going door to door with shared paper and, and pens. 
I know. Let's increase accessibility and get more young people, more people that can't make it out uh, involved in the process and having a say. And, and I'm completely fine. A provincial online petition system should have rules and restrictions of how it's done so that it can't just be co-opted by uh, people that aren't in the province. Uh, and it, of course, has to be respectful, follow proper I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story. So when I was drafting wells and pipelines, um, you know, SPIN2 is the main government system that really uh, holds all the land titles that uh, everybody everybody knows about. And they did a big system upgrade in about uh, 2003, something like that. I remember it because I was working. And then when we got into it, it didn't look like it had changed at all. And um, seeing the RCMP fingerprinting software, um, you know from the Liberal Party, the software that we use for Revenue Canada, like these are all ancient, ancient, ancient software pieces, all of it. And, um, and they, they have no intention of upgrading any of this stuff. And that's the problem, is that our government is not maintaining and not staying on top of the, the technological advances that we could have. And they, they're so uh, difficult to change. So I agree with you. I, I, I can't agree with you more. But I mean, this was long before the pandemic talking about making our conventions more accessible and, and there being so much opposition to it. And I, I think that, you know, this is, we just see that in government in general, where it, they're just not just like 20 years behind, like 30 years behind in software. I mean, when I was growing up and we were first introduced to computers, that's still the type of software we're using for Revenue Canada. And, uh, and I, I don't know what to say, my friend. I think that we think because of movies and media, that our governments are staying on top of this and have the best of the best of the best. And ironically, they don't. And I, I think you see that with the um, with the ambulance service, for example, where, you know, they're using old, old GIS as opposed to modern um, Google Maps where you know, you and I know I can go to Google, Google Maps and find out uh, the bus system better than on Calgary Transit because my, they're just not well, willing to adapt. <laughs> Yeah, things changed fast during my last election. We were out on the, the west side of Lethbridge there and uh, input the address that gave us a marker, but it didn't have the streets yet even. Um, so times are, are changing fast and adaptability definitely does have to, to be something that we, we go with. But I am kind of sarcastic here, but does it really surprise us that our provincial government is 20 to 30 years behind? Well, Look at the policy coming from them. Honestly, I feel like they're trying to go backwards. Like, you know, obviously with their curriculum, talking about pen and paper when I'm talking about computers, I just, I don't even know what, like, I, I don't know how to speak that dumb. Frankly, I don't know how to come down to that <laughs> level and understand where they're coming from at all. And she's an education minister. And, you know, as much as you and I can laugh, which is true and it's hysterical, but at the end of the day, our voters are freedom convoy folks. They are, the, of that intellect where they don't understand the education system they don't understand the computer system they don't know the barriers people are experiencing and i heard this really cynical post and it basically said the reason why people want um to end the mandates and employers want employees back into their offices so that they can control them better you know so that managers can justify their you know micromanaging etc cetera, etc cetera. and i'm like 
as cynical as that take is, that sounds like capitalism at its finest. So, you know, I'm not going to discount it. I'd love to make a world that is, you know, more accessible. And the disability community has been advocating for, for this long before we ever were, uh, for the convention even, uh, because I'm able-bodied, so I don't even know all the barriers that people are facing, and I get to hear about it second, third hand at times, and I just, I don't know. I, now, ironically, for folks who believe in money, 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 capitalism, fiscal responsibility, they would make more money by being more accessible. And ironically, they still won't change. And I, I, that is something I cannot wrap my head around. Yeah, well, that's, it's not something that, that's easy to explain, but processes get set and people like to, to follow them and change can be difficult. Um, so difficult. So in a great, in a, in a better world, I'd love to see that. And I'd love to see, um, you know, for the structures to change. And it, it's really hard because like I was listening to CBC and their economist yesterday morning was touting, I, I couldn't believe he said these words. He's like, well, nowadays, you know, you can basically um, write what you want and then you can get a job there. And I'm like, I don't know what job market this guy's looking at, but that's not the job market in Calgary today. Um, you know, I'm having a hard time finding a job that I'm more than qualified for, um, you know, in, and it's hard when you get those rejection letters. It sucks. Um, but if you, if you even hear back, if you hear back at all, exactly. And I've been debating that, like, is hearing back at all when you're, when you know, you're not even being considered is like that better than getting the rejection letter <laughs> because the rejection letters don't give you any guidance. They just say, no, you're not considered for whatever, you know, we, we found a better candidate. That's almost always what they say. So, um, you know, and that constant rejection. And I'm, I mean, my husband was dealing with it for a year um, yes. when he first lost his job. And then when he, he found this, this job that took us to Lethbridge, I mean, it sounded so great. You got my hopes up for a bit there. I've, we've, we've had coffee over Zoom before. Um, we've chatted, we've messaged, and I was like, oh, we're going to be able to actually have coffee Just together. Just hang regularly. out, maybe even have a hot tub <laughs> together. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, Darcy we play so with my big close. dog. <laughs> we were so close. Oh my God. I thought, I remember the, the weekend before Darcy got laid off. He, uh, it was my first weekend. I just relaxed for the first time in months of moving. And, uh, you know, we had a bid on the house and he was happy at work and things seemed okay. Whew. And then, man, and I've been really grateful for my treadmill. I think that's the only thing that kept my body from having um, an actual heart attack and I'm only now starting to come down a little, but I don't feel safe. It's going to take a few more months of, of things before I feel safe because we're still not financially secure, but I, I can't take that job for not for another minute. It was really bad. And I, I felt really bad for the employees that continue there. I, I don't think like, I don't, I've been trying to think like, do you unionize the registries? Um, Cause I don't think you can get buy-in there, but the safeguards, like, I think everyone needs a, a commissioner, a security guard sitting at the door. I can't believe how violent people were getting. And well, I can, but you know what I mean? Where it's like, well, this is the government of Alberta. You think that people would be better, but it was like the excuse to be worse. And, you know, maybe that one was different because it was downtown, but holy. Well, and this government has always liked to to put it onto the 
for lack of a better term, the, the little people. We expect servers to enforce mask mandates and uh, not expect the, the police to, to come when they're called to enforce it. We right. expect them to be checking uh, red deer. They said they were showing pictures of puppies and getting let in instead of the restriction exemptions program at a certain place. The employer turned around and blamed the 15 or 16 year old work in the front. Uh, and uh, it's, yeah, there's, if this government had been more clear provincially on what the restrictions were, what was expected and what was being done to enforce that, it would have taken a lot more pressure off of our, our small businesses that uh, frankly have suffered extensively throughout this. Well, and now the drop of all the mandates makes these um, positions even harder to enforce because you have, you know, violent radicalized people that are willing to bust windows and, and such. And now you have, you know, businesses that are like, yeah, but we know what that the science says to wearing your mask. I don't know what to say. I don't think that showing your vaccine passport was such a big deal in a pandemic. Like these pandemics last for like five years. So we're not even halfway through and people couldn't be bothered. And, uh, you know, and, and they don't understand simple science. Oh, well, people with the vaccines who got the COVID. I'm like, yeah, because there were variants, because there were so many people who didn't get the vaccine and like globally, let alone locally. So it, it's so hard to even have a reasonable conversation with folks that are committed to anti-science views. The divisiveness, yeah, has been quite uh, almost heartbreaking to watch. I've lost several friends. I lost one friend uh, of over 10 years that just is not uh, in favor of vaccinations or, or mandates and uh, they're they're welcome to their view but that the hostility that comes with it um, is just it's just too much um, this whole well you know the old joke that uh, we always wonder how we do in a zombie apocalypse and uh, all you were asked to do here was get vaccinated and wear a mask yeah, I never, never saw all of this coming. And, and I just, I was really surprised, really surprised that uh, people couldn't be bothered to wear a mask. But again, it shows the um, incredible disparity between the two communities of non-Indigenous to Indigenous. Of course, they're not affected. I had a conversation with someone. So when I had my daughter, um, you know, a lot of mommy groups and such, and I had this conversation with this one friend and you know, she was certain uh, we couldn't be friends anymore. And I'm like, okay, call me. So we, we, we spoke together for the first time in years. She had moved to Saskatchewan. And, um, you know, so I was still stuck here and, and uh, we were talking about different things. And she's like, well, I guess we're not that far away from each other. I'm like, yeah. But the thing that came very clear was that she hasn't been affected in any capacity by COVID, you know, other than the restrictions. Whereas like I've had uncles die, the community is suffering, I'm suffering financially, let alone other people in my community. Like we are easily showing two completely different worlds of Canada. And despite all the conversation about reconciliation, there hasn't been the investment into, um, like you were talking about uh, paper policies. I mean, gender equity plus is a, and those budgets are really important to me, but really like we are seeing huge uh, difference between one to the other. Ironically, that CBC reporter who said what he said and the uh, morning guy was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Ironically, the next segment they had was uh, three uh, single moms talking about their experience in this pandemic and utterly heartbreaking, 
listening to their struggles. And there's like the unpaid labor women give is has been long standing, long talked about. But at the end of the day, we're still not acknowledged for the work that we do. And, um, you know, it, it was so awful to listen to what the single moms were going through. And, you know, for a whole bunch of conservative rhetoric of how pro-life they are, pro-family they are, they certainly don't help single parents at all. And my dad, to this day, is convinced that, um, you know, he was uh, attacked by child welfare when uh, my parents were divorcing. But I said, but dad, it's because you married a native and had native kids. That's why. And he's still, that's, that's not it. They don't listen to white men like you think they do. And I'm like, dad, you've never been targeted. You're white. You're, if you would have had white children, you would have never been targeted, but you had native kids and that's why you were targeted. And he, he's, he's not sure about, well, I don't know if I agree. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can't rationalize with that guy. So, well, on certain <laughs> subjects, but ironically, he thinks, despite all of this, you know, knowing what actual fascism is, he still thinks that um, the governments are being fascist. And I'm like, this isn't fascism. There's not police knocking on your door, shoving a vaccine in your arm. This is like, that is not happening. They, all they asked was that you, you stay home if you're not vaccinated. Stay right. home if you're vaccinated and you're showing symptoms. Right. Uh, wear a mask when you go out. Um, at what people point? People aren't caring about that. They're not wearing a mask anyway. You know, they're not. So no. I don't know what to say. I feel pretty stupid even myself, though, is, uh, you know, watching the Olympics and seeing our Olympians wearing masks at the peak our, of their... Our women's team, yeah at the peak of their hard work and I'm like having a hard time going up and down the sea trade platform with my mask on <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason you and I aren't there we're we're here watching <laughs> right man they kicked my butt let me tell you so yeah I was pretty surprised with them but it's not just them like lots of the Olympians are wearing masks while performing like they're high performance and I'm like oh, man like that's inspiring seeing our athletes still wearing their masks despite the insanity around them and not letting that be the the thing that you know stops their their performance their their you know athleticism like I, they're so inspiring and that you know it that just makes me look down so much more <laughs> these freedom <laughs> lawyers like I'm like man do you know how stupid you sound like literally wearing a mask once upon a time, scientists and doctors didn't know wearing masks reduced those things. And we had like the Black Plague and, and the Spanish flu, all of these different pandemics. And just wearing a mask helps everybody. And that was too much to ask for the privilege. And another thing that was never or is, is undervalued is the speed at which our, our federal government, I should say, moved. Um, the criticism of restrictions changing, well, we've never dealt with this before. Of course, things are going to change. We're always working with the best information we have available. And yes, things do change. Uh, different strains come out. Uh, and we've, we've got to be able to roll with it. And it's about keeping your, your friends, your family, and your, your neighbors safe. And Ironically, I found it was, again, Jason Kenney and the provincial government that became the barriers for any of the um, positive actions that were happening federally. Um, 
you know, and so the Indigenous community and the health community advocated for Indigenous to be one of the highest priority for vaccination. And if it wasn't for this government listening, like Mark, um, Mark Miller and Carolyn Bennett for, you know, the faults that they have on maybe some of the governance structure, at the end of the day, they listened and agreed and we were highest priority which matters because we are going through the genocide again through this pandemic in a different way than the regular genocide that Indigenous face through Canada. Um, and a reminder to folks listening, during the Spanish flu, they actually shut down governments. They just shut them down. They're just like, okay, we're done until after the pandemic. There was no guidance. So, and then to see our elected officials, you know, going to Hawaii, going to Mexico, like it was such a slap in the face. What are you thinking? It was such a slap in the face. I mean, a lot of us can't even afford to uh, take time off now, let alone, um, you know, jump down to, you know, a vacation. And uh, ironically, I guess uh, Justin, while he was uh, recovering from COVID, he went skiing in Quebec and uh, like the conservatives are totally blasting him for it. And I'm just like, your own people went to freaking Mexico, went to Hawaii. Like we had Hawaii Gates as a, a stupid hashtag and you're really getting on him for going to a ski resort by his house. Like, I don't know Jason Kenney's ever vacationed in Alberta ever. Like there's no other place that I've well, nobody, nobody knew that he lived here until he became premier. <laughs> it's true. No, I know <laughs> it's true. And then the whole scandal about him using his like mom's, um seniors lodge basement as the as a staging that was like it was a funny joke but it's not funny because you know um when i ran municipally one of the first questions that was asked at the door well do you live in the riding yeah i've lived in the riding since uh 2005 and or i guess like it would be the ward here uh when talking about municipal politics anyway it didn't matter when it came to voting it didn't matter and it didn't, doesn't matter that you know jason kenny basically lives in ottawa he he won what wins by a landslide here all the time so it, it, it's so hard because people are so hypocritical in their ideology when it comes to certain things and you know at the end of the day we have an easterner running the province with with the stereotype that he thinks the province should be run by when that's I, I don't find most Albertans to be that unreasonable. Um, usually if you call them out on things, they'll in the end agree, um, or at least, you know, have dialogue. But now we're just seeing, you know, he, he won't, he blocks everybody. He won't even have dialogue with people. He won't hear other opinions from people who have been here. And uh, that's what's really frustrating for me is that, you know, you can't even have dialogue. I mean, I've seen that federally, which is why I became a federal liberal, but, um, you know, they just, they won't even return phone calls here. They don't need to. They don't have to. I, I, I do think that Alberta is a lot more progressive uh, than it's given credit for. Yep. Uh, I think after, honestly, decades of conservatives being elected and reelected, I think there comes that level of fatigue. Is it is it worth fighting for? Is it worth fighting against? Is it worth? And uh, I, I think over the next, I would like to say, uh, hopefully by the next election, probably take a bit longer than that. I think we will start to see more progressive voices in uh, in Alberta. Um, 
hopefully, hopefully in our lifetimes. Uh, and uh, I think as younger people uh, become a voting age and, and mature and grow up, I, I think we will see a, a definite shift of the, the racism, the homophobia and such is um, not, I, I'm not saying it'll ever go away, um, but hopefully in the, the next few decades that starts to come down and be less prevalent in our society. Uh, I know the, the work that you and many other great advocates do, do contribute to that. Uh, what it really comes down to is people educating themselves. And uh, like you always post, it's not your duty to use Google. Um, do your research, Google, uh, and, uh, and educate yourself. Uh, there's there's so much room for progress in in all ages uh i've been overwhelmed by the the progress i've seen in some uh, very senior uh residents of lethbridge that came up to me after conversion therapy was banned to thank me uh, mm -hmm. that they've followed it for years uh, he said my my daughter's a lesbian and uh so you have no idea what that meant to me and just mm -hmm. southern alberta uh, someone over, well over the age of 80 years old to come up and shake my hand and thank me for that was we've we've got a lot more uh, support and uh, I think it's just a matter of people need to to use their voice and, and be an ally and, and step up it shouldn't always be be you having to fight for these things right yeah but I, I will say um, I think that Canadians need to understand how hurtful and insulting it is to tell Indigenous people this isn't who we are because it is who you are. It has been who you are for years and years. And, you know, I, people's idea of allyship has been really, really difficult for folks to swallow who are actually oppressed. And I hope, I hope that that's the shift that we see, like you're talking about in the next, you know, rather than performative, that it's actual like systemic changes. While I rail for more accessibility as far as petitions and such, at the same time, I'm not sure if you had a chance to read it. My article in the Knock Knock blog that went out at the, the end of January there, I do take issue with people's advocacy being limited to Facebook. I right. do take issue with it being limited to, to online and behind a screen. Yeah. Um, obviously, behind a screen doesn't count if you're participating in, in policy and uh, advocacy. Uh, but just what you post on Facebook, setting a black square as your profile picture, it really doesn't do anything. It does not benefit anyone. Uh, sure, it looks good, but unless that's followed up with concrete action, concrete support, uh, people have, have different strengths. Some people have a, a strong voice. Some people um, don't, but have that, uh, that ability to, to donate financially. And uh, yeah. It's, it's not a, a one size fits all and not everyone can or, or is able to do the same things. Not everyone's in a safe enough space to speak out. Um, but my, what I would say is I would encourage everyone to step up and, and do what you can and uh, surround yourself with, with people and uh, groups that, that will make it safe to, to speak out and uh, do what you can. There's, there's safety in numbers. And uh, we've, I think we've both had very distasteful um, interactions with allies on on both sides of our, our advocacy and it's, it's true yeah definitely yeah. a lot to relate to another interesting thing that uh, we were talking about last night um my wife found uh, the calgary public library actually did a, a screening of uh, a documentary shot um largely just outside lethbridge esther tail feathers um mm. 
featured heavily in that. I can't remember the name of the, the documentary off the top. It's about empathy. It's the Blackfoot uh, term for empathy on the opioid crisis. It was very well done. Yeah. Um, I've seen it in Lethbridge. Did you? I've seen it in Lethbridge. And um, I, you and Miranda were busy that night because I know I invited you. But when I got there, of course, it was basically like all Blackfeet, uh, Blackfoot people there when we were all watching it together. So, so it was actually really like the perfect. The only way it would have been better is it actually on at the Blood Tribe to have watched it. <laughs> but <laughs> That's you know, fair. honestly, it was like the Blood Tribe was all in Lethbridge anyway, so <laughs> it, it worked uh, out really well. But it was, it was honestly, it was just, uh, it was wonderful to watch it. Yeah. Um. I think it's just hard else. because it's uh, the opioid crisis. Like when I open up my Facebook, that's what I see. Um, between COVID and the opioid crisis, it's just taking our people. And um, as much as you tell people, like they don't get it, they don't see it, they don't, they don't see what we see. And uh, the amount of funerals that people are going through, going to, um, I, I actually have been like, a friend of ours just lost their grandma and so they're going to um manitoba and it, it's just so hard because it's constant it's constant friends it's constant family and anyway the point of this movie was to really highlight it and to show show basically the the darkest part of colonialism and what it's done Absolutely. And I think that's the, the big difference on, on policy and why you and I ended up on the same side of the political spectrum is, and you referenced this earlier today, um, just kind of that, that money. And on the, the right, you have to, to save money. We don't pay for drugs for people um, without realizing that preventative aspect. We're saving our health care by providing uh, substitutes, by helping people get uh, off uh, addictions or to, to wean away from it, whatever supports that individual needs. And uh, between be, between COVID and the opioid epidemic, um, I think it's a real wake up call for Albertans. We, we have a lot to do to step up uh, really across Canada. Uh, you and I ran provincially on a platform of declaring a public state health state of emergency due to the opioid epidemic. Uh, and uh, I still feel strongly about that. I still think there's a lot to do. Uh, and I, I just don't think we're getting there as quickly as we need to with a government that continues to move regressive policies and uh, ask for your Alberta healthcare number to, to use a supervised consumption site. Right. It, it's really incredible to me, the barriers that are against Indigenous people. And that wasn't even highlighted in that movie. And I couldn't help but think, because uh, uh, Esther, Dr. Esther Talfeathers um, runs a methadone clinic and, um, you know, the humanity that she tries to give to that. And what I, I was thinking of Corey Ashley and Lillian Ashley, you referenced them earlier, you know, how you cried listening to Corey talk about that. And I, I couldn't help but think, like, if Esther would have been in that Hannah Hospital, how different this outcome would be. Lillian would be here for sure. And, um, you know, we'd be having a very different conversation about that situation. But anyway, I, I, I just wish non-Indigenous understood the, the problems. And ironically, the opioid crisis was pushed by the pharmaceutical companies through the doctors. And there are lots of white people dealing and settler people dealing with um, addiction issues because they don't really have a proper weaning system when it comes to opioids. 
So um, I give out naloxone and Narcans like candy. And especially when I was taking the stupid sea train, all of our homeless population in the um, Marlboro sea train, you know, it, it it's utterly heartbreaking. All of them are impacted by Indian residential schools, all of them. And I don't know, I don't know. We still can't get appropriate services that talk about um, colonial trauma uh, created by the state, uh, culturally relative um, support systems where you're allowed to smudge in buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's just, and that was what I was trying to work on before the pandemic, but you know, obviously so much has changed in my life and my ability to be able to do more. And ironically, like some of these groups, they're so mean in how they are. And I'm like, if you are the advocates for, um, you know, anti, um, opioid addiction, um, you know, for services for harm reduction, and you talk to me like this, I can't imagine how you're treating our street people that are, you know, impacted by Indian residential school, you don't know how to talk to natives in any capacity. So uh, I'm so concerned about, you know, where our people are going. I'm grateful Bear Clan finally is going. Uh, when I worked for 12 Community Safety Initiative, we tried to get more uh, patrol walks going, but, you know, you couldn't get buy-in at that time. And it was such a pro, uh, I don't know, the, the white supremacy is so insidious that people don't even see that they're busy doing it. So I was really glad when Bear Clan kind of became a thing, but it was, uh, you know, the, the pandemics made it more difficult for both the original founders to necessarily continue doing that work too. Um, how do you do it? I mean, I'm, I'm struggling. I can't imagine how other people are doing too. So I, I could go on and on. I hope that we kind of talked about some of the things you wanted to talk about today. Yeah, I feel like it just got better the longer it went. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm really glad that we had the the Sage Clan here that that stepped up, and they were featured a little bit in that uh, that documentary, and they've they've been doing good work for for quite some time. And uh, can I tell you something that really scared me when I was in Lethbridge? Yeah, for sure. Everybody told me that the cops, um, kids, they have their own gang and they beat up natives all the time. When I was there, there was something called, I want to say safe walk. It was like a red truck with like these decals on it. The watch. Ugh. So I tried to talk to them during the um, Sisters in Spirit vigil. And I was like, oh, do you know where Sage, Sage Clan is? And they were like, nope. They just didn't even want to acknowledge me as a human being. I'm like, holy shit, you guys are pricks. So anyway, and I finally seen Sage Patrol. So I went over and gave them my Narcan, but. I was like, why would you guys be like that? But then I realized that was the group everybody was talking about. And they constantly patrol downtown, but they don't know how to talk to Native people. Is there any way they can lose their funding? Or are they just a bunch of Nazis that are thinking they're doing good in the world? Uh, that's funded through the police um, department. So through the... They're the gang. I wanted to confirm that. They're not nice to Indigenous people. I experienced it firsthand, but I've heard so many secondhand stories. And um, that really scares me that that's being allowed at all. And if it's being funded through the police, that means it's taxpayer funded. But I mean, we have lots of harmful nonprofits here that operate too. So it's, it's definitely a problem nationally as well. Don't want to take that away. So I'm very concerned about uh, the safety of our people when you have that. Because as you can see with Convoy, the police don't hurt white people, but you can see in the hospitals, our people are constantly disfigured by people who are good people. Right? 
I, I think there's a, a lot uh, of work to be done as far as how we we view, for lack of a better word, social services. Um, I, I talked about this with a, a veteran uh, friend and yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you've got similar stories and experiences. Sending police out on mental health checks is not always the best idea, uh, mm-hmm. especially with individuals with PTSD or um, another uh, argument to fund mental health. Like that's the irony is that all of the money we're putting into um, policing, we should be putting into mental health, and this will literally reduce it. Yeah, and I believe there's somewhere in Europe that actually. I'm, I'm going to have to fact check myself on this one later. Um, You're thinking Portugal. No, that uh, maybe that uh, started sending out mental health workers with police, just that police would be that safety backup, but they're sending the mental health uh, provider in to, to address these situations. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I think there's a lot of research that could be done on that. Uh, there's a, a lot of research I'd like to see done on bar- guaranteed basic income. Uh, there's a lot of preventative things we can look at that would actually save us in the long run but because when you're preventing something you can't quantify it it's uh it does make it a, a hard sell well we do have reports and studies to show it again we just don't have leadership to implement yeah. it that's really what it comes down to so it's hard because you can know it you can know that the solutions are there but you just don't have um you know folks in positions of power is willing to do anything because they're obviously run by you know <laughs> Not the people. <laughs> By the and lobbyists. I don't know. So it's and sad. that's why we run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's say what we need to say, say our piece, and then go from there. And you know, obviously the the people who vote, they have to decide what they want to do. And you know, it's been interesting watching the convoy and, and them complaining on Twitter, but not necessarily holding these politicians to account. Anyway, anyway. I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions and included cultural safety training, cultural first aid, and almost all of them to create a safer space for Indigenous people of color, those with disabilities, and LGBTQ2 to speak. Thank you, author Cheryl Ward, uh, Chelsea Branch, Alicia Fritkin of heretohelp.bc.ca. They have a great article about what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. And I wish it was mandatory that anybody who deals with public has to read this as a call to action 57. Their work and most cultural action tools I've said over hundreds of times on my podcast, so please support Indigenous work like that as part of your reconciliation work and settler understandings. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat it here. Internalized racism and lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized folks experience by the structure of racism. Um, Donna Bevins has a wonderful um, article about internalized racism in equity racialequitytools.org, but also if you were to just Google information on oppression dynamics and internalized hate, you would find tons of information. Do's and don'ts for bystander intervention, uh, American Service, American Friends Service Committee. So if www.afsc.org, they have do's and don'ts for bystander intervention. So if you see, you know, a woman being harassed by, you know, a truck convoy or maybe somebody's mask being ripped off their face by some anti-masker. You know, these are things that you can do. Um, if you see or, or experience racism, please report it at actandracism.ca, uh, 587-507-3838, if that's easier for you. And I'll just for, you know, transparency, I 
posted um, a picture of where I had to work. I walk by Mawada Armories and right on ninth there, they have um, a traffic light that has squaw on it. And um, I took a picture and I posted it and it hasn't ever been taken down. So even I have to send that to um, Act to End Racism and there's a anti-hate Alberta uh, website that I, I want to give it to just for their stats, which I know don't matter and aren't going to ever be looked at anyway, as Devin and I have spoken about endlessly today. But um, at least I, I'll do the due diligence before reporting it to 311. Um, and then after I report it to 311, monitoring it to see how long it takes for them to uh, deal with it, even though it's been public for, you know, at least a month now. Uh, Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and in public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their platforms and policies if they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with Gender Equity Plus. The cutting violence prevention programs and services, Indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay-straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities. Know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. The recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the justice, educational, and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. And if they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties, local politicians, and community organizations. Um, lots of articles are available now on how non-Indigenous Canadians can become allies. And um, I'm just going to say this real quick. The uh, convoy tried to use the terminology every child matters when talking about their non-indigenous children they also um, tried to make uh, orange shirt day outside of uh, September 30th showing their ignorance for TRC but also the story behind it um, I don't know what to say I want to help people but so many people are so committed to misunderstanding it if you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. You can also go onto their website, hopeforwellness.ca, where they have a texting interaction screen. Um, if more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. Again, a national toll-free 24-7 crisis line for that topic. For non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area and usually a functioning 211, or you can call 833-456-4566. Uh, for Indigenous, the 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta, SSISA.ca, uh, is a resource for folks that were uh, forced into the foster system thanks to the policies that continue today. Um, again, Act to End Racism, you can go to their website or text at 8, or sorry, 587-507-3838. Uh, the Trevor Project has lots of resources for LGBTQ2 plus youth. Um, 
can go to their their website of lifevoice.ca and see the many you have the trans lifeline you have an lgbt youth peer support line you can text that and then of course the kids help phone at 1-800-668-6868 violence is an everyday reality for indigenous people every generation has faced it that's why i started the podcast to speak freely without interruption, without tone place, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs, usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous colonialism, the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights, and I think that was pretty highlighted with this convoy. Microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism, gatekeepers, folks who live off the status quo, or people who are just in their trauma. Um, internal and external racism is an everyday reality for indigenous people i want to say thank you to my ancestors my granny my mom of what strength looks like through your examples i want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her austrian family and roots and teaching me to be a proud calgarian it is through her i'm a second generation proud calgarian but i highly recommend people who are non-status or non-native uh, don't call yourself a native Calgarian. I literally do it to make fun of you. Um, thank You've you. You've got the copyright now. <laughs> <laughs> you know how much it has pissed off so many settlers that are racist. <laughs> I love it. Um, thank you, Darcy, for producing and editing the show on top of being my, my husband, my childhood friend and the father of our child. You have supported me in my journey on the Red Road and have witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, we are blessed to learn from daily. We are so honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and a stronger person. My hope is that one day my daughter and my family will be proud of us discussing these present day issues. Um, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or your questions. I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. You can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts, and you can go onto my social medias and see the pinned posts. And lastly, I want to, you know, give side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not traditional. And my beautiful cousin responded, or you'd be in my dish. <laughs> Thanks for listening.